I too am enthused by your enthusiasm. I hope those of you who've been here for the services thus far have gotten a slight indication that I'm passionate about this subject. And uh, the reason for it is, it's very personal to me. Because at the ages of some of these young people in the audience, I was going through some struggles myself with this question about how science and Christianity can get along. And was deeply concerned that if I dug too deeply into the sciences, it would cause me to have to give up my faith. So it was scary. So I'm well aware of those kinds of feelings. And so if you're here tonight or you're listening to this in one of the wonderful ways you can listen these days from a distance, and you are an agnostic or you're a doubter of some kind about some things and you're worried about things, I hope you will take it upon yourself to challenge what you're thinking and to investigate. And don't hesitate to ask questions. And I'm thankful that you're listening. And I hope that tonight we can present some other information that I have learned over the past 60 years of rather in-depth study that will help you see the magnificence of the God we serve. So, that's my introduction for tonight. Thank you for coming. It's a blessing to me to get to be here. I appreciate the invitation of the eldership here to participate in this. And I would, I would suggest to you that you express your appreciation for their wisdom for having something like this. We live in an age in which this is badly needed, in my view. And so, class, this is my class. Are you ready to study some chemistry? And I know you're going to nod your head like this because that's the direction we're going tonight. And just in case you're not aware, that was my major in college in the early days. And in addition to that, I have always felt like my role was to be a teacher of science, not a practitioner of it. I'm not a research scientist. So I can't claim publications of all kinds, but I do believe I can take difficult information and explain it to the laity, <laughs> the common folk, and I'm one of you. So I hope I can do that for you tonight. So let's start this way. Here's an article that came out in Time Magazine in 1966. 1966, I had just graduated from Florida College, and I was a student at Florida State University at that time in chemistry, folks. And this was a very popular topic at that time. Is God dead? And the Time Magazine featured it. This was a headline article because that was the common thing being discussed. And I can tell you why. It's because of the developments in science that were leading people to think it's going to be a very short time before we don't need God. In fact, it's already here. Because we're learning so much about the natural world, we don't need God to explain these things anymore. So that was very common. Interestingly enough, that same year, A.W. Dicus wrote the song, our God, He is Alive, which we sang here at this congregation Sunday. And it's a very popular song. 
among those who are believers. Because you remember the chorus says, our God, he is alive. In him we live and we survive. And it's a declaration of faith that God is alive, not dead. And Brother Dicus was the dean at Florida College. And I actually sat in his literal seat because I served as dean for a period of time. And was a strong believer in God as a physicist of some renown. And he said, our God is alive. So I tell you again what I told you in the first lesson and that is lots of believers today are scientists, so don't think otherwise. But the commonly accepted position by those who are in control is that you don't need God. So in this article, there were articles like this by Altizer and Hamilton, both of whom are theologians, you listening to me, preachers, saying things like this, we must realize that the death of God is an historical event, that it, God has died in our cosmos, in our history, and the dead God is the God of the historic Christian church and beyond the church of Christendom at large. So not only is God dead, but it's the God of Christendom that's dead. And these are preachers in Christendom churches in the broadest sense of that word, saying that. How in the world could God be dead? The only way that could be, folks, is if we made him up in the first place, which came to be the commonly accepted view. So I say to you again, in the 1960s, that was common, and from that came an awful lot of outgrowths which say believers in God belong back in the dark ages. And I say it's time to revisit that. There's an interesting new book that's come out in 2021, this one by Eric Metaxas. Maybe you've heard of him. But it's a very interesting read, and I'd highly recommend it to you. Brand new book. Is Atheism Dead? And here's what he says. Since the Time article in 1966, the one I just showed you, roughly five things have arisen to challenge, and I will argue to overturn the secular consensus that formed in the wake of that article. I thought say amen to what he said. Because things have happened in the 20th and 21st century that ought to be turning people's heads. I started that discussion with you last night. I'm going to continue it tonight. So here are the five things Eric Metaxas identifies there's a beginning. You remember I told you this last night? The evidence from science is very clearly pointing that there was a beginning for time, matter, and space. That's not what they used to believe, but it is now the commonly accepted position, though they don't like it. Secondly, the fine-tuning. Did we do this last night, class? Make me feel better and nod your heads. We introduced you to the fine-tuning argument. Thirdly, stupefying complexity. We did a little bit of that last night, and we're going to do more tonight. And I hope you walk out of here stupefied. No, more than that, I want you to be so stupefied by the complexity of what you've talked about that you glorify the God of heaven.
for his magnificence. That's what this is about for me. And then archaeological discoveries, he talks about the veracity of the Bible and what atheism is and what it produces. And if you don't read anything else, you read his section in our, what's happened when, since atheism has dominated. You do know that the 1900s was the worst killing time in humanity. And it was dominated by atheism and communism. So is atheism dead? It ought to be. So there's a bibliography back there that'll have all the books I've mentioned and a whole lot more. And by the way, I put stars by the really good ones. So get one if you would like. The scriptures teach that the study of nature should lead to belief in God. Romans chapter 1, I'll read again tonight. For those of you who were not here before, if this were a science classroom on a campus of a college, I would not be reading from the scriptures. I would be turning strictly to the nature, evidence of the natural world. Because folks who don't even believe in God are not going to listen when you quote the Bible, folks. You need to start with the evidence of the natural world and at least bring someone to the point that surely there's evidence for belief in a creator. Then you can talk about the Bible. But we're in a church building here, and most of you are believers already, so I want you to know, believers, that the Scripture itself supports the position that I'm taking that nature can lead you to believe in God. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That scripture teaches you can learn something about God from nature, his eternal power. He must be amazingly powerful, and he must be divine, something beyond this natural world in order for the world to exist. And basically, it's the argument from design, because when you look at something that's made, you may immediately think about a maker or a designer. So, in this series, I'm using the argument from design from one end to the other. That's what it's about. So, let's talk about design using chemistry. How do you beat this? I want to talk about the evidence from chemistry of living things in my next life. I'm kidding, of course. I would love to come back and spend my entire time just doing biochemistry. Will you join me? I hope you will after this lecture. It speaks to a grand designer, ladies and gentlemen, and I make no hesitation to say that. So are you ready for our chemistry lesson tonight? Let's get started. I'm talking about the chemistry of living things. So I'm going to refer you to a little book by Francis Crick called Life Itself. Who knows who Francis Crick is? Anybody want to help me? I'll give you a hint. 
he had something to do with DNA. He was given credit for co-discovering the structure of DNA. In 1953, raise your hand if you were alive. 1953. Thank you. You make me feel better. I was eight years old. Phenomenal year, class. If I had time, I could go on for about an hour about 1953. Important year in the history of chemistry. Francis Crick and his cohort, James Watson, are given credit for discovering the structure of DNA, a critically important discovery in the history of mankind and in the discovery of how life works. So if anybody knows about life itself, it ought to be Francis Crick at the chemical level. So that's who I'm quoting from here in this little book. And so let me see here. I want to turn to page 72 of life itself. Life as we know it on earth appears as a synthesis of two macromolecular systems. And I just lost you, right? Here's what he said in simple terms. Every living thing we know about has at least two large kinds of molecules. Every one of them. The proteins, because of their versatility and chemical reactivity, do all the work. But are unable to replicate themselves in any simple way. So class, I want you to participate. Last night we all said just right. Tonight, the answer is proteins, all right? So let's practice. The first major kind of molecules in all living things are? Proteins. Excellent. The answer to almost every question I'm going to give you tonight is proteins, so don't do poorly on this test. That's one great class of molecules, proteins. So look at this. He's breaking them down into the types. So there are structural materials in every living thing. They are made up of? Good. And they make up the construction, the shape and mobility of living things. There's lots of proteins that help make that. Okay, that's first. Secondly, there are the tools and machinery of living things that are called enzymes. But folks, enzymes are just special forms of? That's right. It's just another form of a protein. Enzymes. Enzymes help things function more efficiently. If you want to know the chemistry, they lower the activation energy of a reaction to make it more easily done. Right, Professor? That's right. But they are class proteins. All right. That's the first major class of molecules in all living things. Secondly, however, for every kind of living thing, there are the blueprints And the materials within those are called nucleic acids. That's the DNA and the RNA in every living thing. And they are for reproduction. They contain the information and they allow directive functions to take place. Amazing directive functions about which we knew almost nothing in 1953. But we know a whole lot more in 2022 and 23 as you'll find out tonight. So there are two classes, proteins and nucleic acids. 
And you do not have anything living that doesn't have both. So here's what Dr. Crick says about that. Listen closely. The origin of life would be a great deal easier to approach if there were only one family of macromolecules able to do both jobs, reproduction and all the work. You see, RNA and DNA are good for reproducing things. They're not very good for doing the work. Proteins are good for doing the work, but they can't reproduce themselves. Are you with me, class? The problem for explaining how living things got started without God is how did you get both of those things functioning together like they do in such amazing ways naturally by itself? It's a big old problem. And just so you know, he proceeds to talk about how that might have taken place, but then he admits, and by the way, about the last half of this book, well, here he said, let me just read it. An honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now, and this was in like the 1980s, people, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. Reminds me of a statement in the Bible, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It's almost a miracle. I say, folks, the plain facts are there ain't any way it happened without a miracle. Then he says, if this was a highly likely thing, then there's no problem that all this came about by natural causes. But if it turns out that it was rather unlikely, we're compelled to consider whether it might have arisen in other places in the universe where possibly for one reason or another, conditions were more favorable. So he says, maybe it came from somewhere else. Maybe there's not enough time here in four and a half billion years to have it happen here. And if it didn't happen here, it happened somewhere out there and they sent it here on a spaceship. You think I'm kidding? The rest of this book is about directed panspermia. What's directed panspermia? It's the sending of some kind of sperm from outer space here on a spaceship. He has a whole chapter of what the spaceship might have been like. People, do we have one scintilla of evidence that some creature out there sent the first living things here on a spaceship? Not one scintilla. But it tells you how a man like Dr. Crick is so frozen-minded, he'll take any explanation other than God. And what he speaks about here is utterly ridiculous. And he's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. But these are the facts. You have to have two large classes of molecules in any living thing to make them function. So we're in 101 biochemistry. The first thing you need to do, class, is memorize what you see on the screen. <laughs> there will be a quiz in the morning when you come to class. 
every protein in every living thing is made up of these 20. Okay? They're called amino acids. So let me do just a little bit of chemistry with you here. Hope everybody can see what I'm doing. I want you to see why they're called amino acids. Kids, you ready? You see that NH3 right there? There's one on every one of these. You see that? NH3 or NH2 in some cases. Every one of these has an NH2 or NH3 group. That's called an amine. So it's amino. In addition to that, every one of these has a COO on it. You see that? COO, 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 COO. That's a form of an organic acid. So they are amino acids, every one of them. But looking at it, class, even though you know nothing about chemistry, (laughs) are their structures the same? Do they all have exactly the same thing? No, they're all different. There's 20 different ones. That's important because the structure of these amino acids helps determine what they do in the protein, which help determine what it does. So, class, here's my next question. Every protein is a string of amino acids. I'm pausing. So now let me ask you the question. If you take a series of amino acids and string them together in a long strand, what do you have? That's exactly right. Good, thank you. You have a protein. So let's see what I have up here. Every protein is a combination of those 20. And that's whether you're in a one-celled organism, like an E. coli, or in you. So may I pause there just a moment? What would an evolutionist say about the common chemistry of all living things, do you think? Evolution is not totally stupid, folks. Don't think of it that way. One possible explanation for the fact that all living things have a common chemistry is that if we trace our ancestry back far enough, we all came from a common source. Isn't that reasonable? What's a possible explanation? And that common source was the place from which life originated as chemicals came about by natural causes and then somehow got together and produced all living things. And eventually the tree of life with all living things. That is not a crazy answer. It's a possible answer. But I will tell you it has all kinds of problems which part I'm going to try to present. But it's not a foolish answer to say that. Another possible answer is this, class. If a God created us to interplay and interact and, not, and even eat on one another, would he not want us to have a common chemistry? I mean, if I'm going to eat a chunk of meat that's got protein in it, I want those amino acids to work for me. So I want them to have the same amino acids I use, right? That's not a foolish answer either. But see, that one is excluded from modern-day discussion. All right, but it is the case, class, whichever view you take, 
that all proteins and all living things are made of these 20. Just like in the English language, every word's made up of 26 letters, combination of 26 letters, right? Even anti-disestablishmentarianism. Kids, can you spell that one? I won't ask you. But every letter in that big old word is one for one of those 26, isn't it? A through Z. Okay. I think you got that. So I'm talking to you about proteins as one of the two great classes of molecules. Proteins deserve a whole lot more than that. Let's see if I do anything else tonight. No. See, I'm skipping right on to DNA, which is the other great class of molecules. So may I stop right here and offer an apology to every protein because you deserve a whole lot more attention than I gave you tonight. In fact, class, if this were biochemistry, you would be studying proteins for the next six weeks at least and just talking about their properties and all the things they do. But we must go on. The other great class of molecules are the DNA and the RNA. The DNA is a double helix, and that's what Francis Crick and his cohort James Watson discovered in the, in the 1950s. You can see there's, a, see there's a strand that's wrapped around this way and one that's wrapped around that way. There's two strands wrapped around one another. And because it's a double helix with crossbars, it has the capacity to reproduce itself. And it contains a language, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody put your eyes up here on the screen. In this picture, there are four colors. Do you see that? Green, red, yellow, and blue. They represent these four different bases that perform the cross pieces here. And if you look closely, a red always joins up with a yellow, and a blue always joins up with a green. So that's the same way with these molecules. Only certain ones can join up. And so what you have is along this strand, you actually have an alphabet of four letters. And it forms a language, ladies and gentlemen, which we've learned how to read. And we know precisely what it means, which I'm about to teach you. Here we go. There is the language. It's not a spoken language, but it's a language that has four letters in it, thymine, cytosine, adenine, and guanine. And so we've got four letters down this way, four letters across this way, and four letters several times down this way. And what you learn in biochemistry as you study DNA is that every word in this language has three letters. Now, kids, think with me. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a language that had only three-letter words? Bat, and, not. That's all you have is three-letter words. Well, in this language, that's all you've got, three-letter words. But it is a language, and every three-letter word means something. So what you have on this chart is a possibility of here's the first letter, Here's the second letter, and here's the third letter. So let me teach you how to read this language. If you have a T and a T and a T, that's the word T-T-T-T-T. That word is pronounced T-T-T. And it means P-H-E. 
So let me say it for you in a spoken language. It means fee. Let's try another one. If you have an A as your first letter, a T as your second letter, and a T as your third letter, that's A-T-T. At-t. And what does it mean? It means illy. I'll. Let's try another one. Because I hope somebody catches on here. There's a code here. All right, let's try this one. G is your first letter, C is your second letter, and A is your third letter. So GCA is right there. That means Allah. Let me expand that out. Allah is alanine. Ili is isoleucine. P-H-E is phenylalanine. I see some people nodding. What are you, do you recognize anything? Not going to say it though, right? Might be wrong. <laughs> Almost. What you have, ladies and gentlemen, in these are all the 20 amino acids. You do remember I just told you all proteins are made of the same 20 amino acids. The genetic code is a code for the amino acids. The problem is there's 64 words in here, and there's only 20 amino acids, so there are some repeats. I call that a backup system. But the genetic code class tells you how to build a, say it, out of amino acids. And therefore, it contains a code for all those 20 amino acids. So when you read a three-letter word in genetic code, you know it means an amino acid. If you've memorized that table or you carry it with you for your cheat sheet. And by the way, in my class, I don't make you memorize that. You may have that as a cheat sheet. So it's not a cheat sheet. It's an allowed professorial sheet. All right, so let me explain to you briefly what happens, and then I'm going to show you a video about what happens because it makes it clearer. So here we go. There's a whole lot more to this. By the way, may I say this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? If I had to convince you that this was a design system, I would start with this argument. In this cell, you see up here the DNA right there? That DNA contains a code in it, which is a language that we've learned how to read and we know precisely what it does. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, are you familiar with anything in the world where there's a language that didn't require an intelligent designer? Just to have the language. You think nature by itself produced a language that's doing stuff all the time. I rest my case. I'm serious. I think I could stop right now and say to the jury, ladies and gentlemen, I want your verdict. Was that designed or did that come about by natural causes over millions of years? A language requires an intelligent designer but I'm not finished. 
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's only the barest of beginnings. Because what you can see here, if you look closely, is you first of all have to make a copy of the information on the DNA because if all you've got is a language stuck in that DNA, you got nothing except an amazing thing that you have a language. But you can't do anything with it. So what you have to do is copy it. That's called transcription. You copy the information off the DNA and reproduce in the process what's called an RNA. That's a copy of the information on the DNA. There are three basic types of RNA. Messenger RNA, transfer RNA, and ribosomal RNA. Not getting into all that. Folks, in this beginner's class, we are ignoring ribosomal RNA and transfer RNA in terms of all the things that are going on there. Just understand, we haven't touched the hem of the garment. But every one of those are coded in the DNA. That's where the information resides. And these are copies of it. Okay? Then, once it's copied, it has to be matured. You see right here, this thing's got little white pieces in it. They're not white and brown. That's just the way the picture is. But you've got to snip out the white parts. Those are called introns, and mature it, and then it migrates outside the nucleus, outside here where it is picked up by two ducks hugging each other. <laughs> At least that's what it looks like, isn't it? That is not what it looks like. That's for the picture. But those two ducks hugging each other are very important. They're called ribosomes. And they pick up the messenger RNA, and it's read through it like tape through a tape player. Do you kids even know what a tape player is? Oh, you do. Okay. <laughs> we used to have tapes that you would play through a tape player. It's very much like that. And these ducks are reading the information. And out the bottom comes the protein. Now, that's about as pitiful an explanation as you'll ever hear. That's what's going on. So coming from the information up here, down here you, build, you have a built protein as a result. And it's because you can read the code off of here in three-letter words, each of which means an amino acid, and a string of amino acids is a? Protein. Good job. And, of course, it's built down in here. By the way, just as a sidelight, not for discussion, transfer RNA, there has to be one unique one for each amino acid to bring them up here to actually be enjoined to make the proteins. So these little guys here that look, uh, what do they look like? I don't know. Maybe what? I don't know. They're little globs. And they bring up the amino acids, and then inside of here they pick up the code, and then they make the string of amino acids, which is a? Protein. Good. You also have the ribosomal RNAs, which help make up these ducts. All that works together in amazing ways to build a protein. Okay? Let me see what I have next. I have a blow-up to make it a little bigger for you. You see what I told you? These little introns have to be snipped out to mature it, and then it migrates outside. And here's a blow-up of the other so you can see it better. But the picture's the same, just bigger that you can see. 
And now, class, I want to show you a video by Drew Barry. You remember the guy I mentioned to you last night? Animator from Australia. To show you in reality what's happening and even at real-time speed. So don't you miss one second of this, class. You keep your eyes up here. We're going to stop and start and watch what happens. So here we go. Do I need to click? There we go. All right, what you see here, class, is a blob of proteins right here. You see the different colors? They are not different colors. They're different colors on the animation so you can see a difference between them, okay? The same with all the colors. He puts that in there for the visual effect. But there are several different proteins here in a glob, and this strand right here is the DNA. So you're down inside the nucleus of the atom, of the cell, watching what happens as the DNA is being copied, transcribed. That's what you're looking at. You can't see it with the naked eye, people. So he makes an animation to help you see it. All right, so here we go. And you see it's kind of bopping along here. In just a second, you're going to see stop right there. You can see vitamin D coming up here. Get out in the sun and get your vitamin D, people. It's an activator in this particular process. So if you'll watch the vitamin D as it comes along here now, it's picked up by that protein, stop, which turns it green. No. <laughs> it activates it. It changes its composition, activates it, which activates everything else. This is a chain link process. Okay, so here we go. You can see another glob of, what do you think? Protein joins up and joins together, and you start the gene transcription. And what you're going to see here, class, is out of this total blob of proteins, there's about six different proteins there, all very complex. And will you listen to me for just a second? Every one of those proteins had to be built. Are you listening? By the same process I'm about to describe to you. But, folks, it requires those proteins to build the proteins. You say amen? Yeah, thank you. Are you listening? You ought to have a big frown on your face. Every one of those proteins has to be built by the same mechanism I'm about to show you, and it requires them to build the protein. This is a big old problem. How did that all get started? Okay, so if I were to ask you, what's the first step toward transcribing DNA, you would say? Protein. Plural. So say it again. Protein. All right, let's proceed. Now you notice one protein is released. Stop right there. Whoops, we lost him. Keep going. He's going to come out the other side here. All right there, Stop. All right, that's a part of that blob of proteins. It's called RNA polymerase. It's a glob of protein. And by the way, just for your information, if a word ends in A-S-E, in biochemistry, it's an enzyme. But you know because you're brilliant because I've taught you this already, an enzyme is just a 
exactly right, for a specific purpose. In this case, RNA polymerase is a protein that allows you to copy the DNA and its information. How does it do that? Down inside of that glob right there, it's unzipping the DNA, allowing the material to be read on the DNA, copied, and then zipped back together. Zip, read, I mean unzip, read, and zip. That's what's happening down inside of there. Have you ever had trouble, class, zipping something up? Do you think it could be possible that it might be challenging to zip up DNA? Yes. And guess what it takes to be able to let the DNA zip back up? Proteins. Exactly right. Specific for that task. And if we had time tonight, class, I would take you down inside that and I would show you the process by which it allows DNA to get untangled and zip back up. It's a bunch of proteins. I wish I had asked somebody a few minutes ago to start counting how many times we said the word protein. But I didn't. So you're just going to have to believe me when I get finished. <laughs> All right, here we go. We're going to ride along here. You see how it's riding along the DNA? Stop right there. Well, it's going to stop, isn't it? Yeah. It's riding along the DNA. The DNA is being unzipped inside of that glob. It's being copied. And you see this strand coming out here? That's the RNA that has the copy on it. In fact, it is the copy. Have you heard a lot about messenger RNA lately on vaccines? Don't get me started. That's the first time we've ever produced a vaccine with messenger RNA, people. And it was not, in my view, tested enough to have done what we've done with it. Just one man's opinion. Messenger RNA is a whole different thing than taking a copy of the actual virus and sticking it in you almost dead to help your system react. It's a different world. All right. But down in here, you're making messenger RNA that's a copy of the DNA. Very important. So let's go. And so you can see as it rides along here, the DNA is going through and the RNA is coming out. And down inside here, see all these things? Look at how they're flopping around here. Stop right there. Good. That's perfect. Here's the blob of RNA polymerase. See all this stuff coming in from the cytoplasm? You have to have stuff coming in to make the copies. So you better be eating all your stuff you need to build amino acids and to allow them to make proteins. Because your body doesn't make some of them, so you have to eat them. All right, so they're all swimming around in here, and they come inside here, and then they start making the copies down inside. And we're going to look at that now up close. Go ahead. Whoops, did I do that? Oh, my Savior in the back. May I say a word about our IT guy? <laughs> Brother Creech deserves a Medal of Honor. This is not an easy thing to do. So my job to him is whenever I mess things up by hitting the wrong button, he recovers. So here we are. That just happened, right? By natural causes. <laughs> no. That required intelligent design. And he and I practiced. <laughs> the guy spent a lot of time with this. 
and I can't thank him enough. All right, so <laughs> let's see, where are we? All right, here we go. As that thing comes across, you're now looking down inside. Stop right there for just a second. All right, do you see here on the purple, this is the DNA. You see the code, C-G-T-A-A-G. See those three-letter words? That's the code along the DNA, but you can't read it till it's unzipped. You see how it's unzipped here? There's one side of it here and the other side over there. And by the way, class, for years in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we thought only one side was copied. We now know better. Both sides are copied, and they do different things. It's really interesting. That's another whole subject for six weeks later. Ask me back. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Then on the other side, you're taking this three-letter code, and you're exactly mirror imaging it with the RNA pieces. One piece at a time. Copying the information that's on here. So the stuff that I showed you that floats in there starts making these copies. Every time you see an A over here, you're going to see a T over here. A G over here, you're going to see a C over here. The exact mirror image. And it makes that copy. I know you're with me. So here we go. Let's keep going. So you see how fast this is going? That is nothing, class. You see this unzipped, it's making the copies and releasing it off to the cytoplasm, but this is how fast it goes. Is that amazing? All that's happening in microseconds, people. As it copies whole sections of the DNA, stop! We just left out about 68 pages right there. Because now we're on the outside of the nuclear membrane, and that's the messenger RNA coming outside migrating. Last time we saw him, he was being made up there in the DNA. Did you notice how fast that was going? Incredible. And that's what I like about this animator. He makes you see it in real time. This is no small matter class. This stuff is happening in microseconds. Every second you sit there, you think your body's doing nothing? Why do you think you get tired listening to me just sitting there? <laughs> Every cell in your body is doing this. And if it didn't, you'd be dead. Isn't it interesting how natural selection, acting on natural variation over a million years, produced this? No, it's unbelievable. That's what that is. Okay, let's go on. So now we have the messenger RNA made. It's coming outside the nucleus. Stop, bro. Oops, got to go back. Can you go back just a little? <laughs> I forgot something. He's going to take us back. All right. This is the nuclear membrane. Do you see those holes right there? Every nuclear membrane has holes in it. Do you think any respectful Nuclear membrane, it's just going to let anything go through those holes? No, absolutely not. Guess what guards the hole, class? Absolutely. And one of the things this picture does not show you is there's a protein sitting there in that hole that when the messenger RNA comes up to it, it says, may I pass? And he says, you're welcome. Opens up and says, come right on through. And when he goes through, he closes back up. That's another 
exactly in this process of the many. Do you think this side of the hole is any different? You think that nuclear membrane is going to let just anything go back through that hole? No class. On the other side, there's another to guard the hole. All right. Didn't want to miss that. So here comes the messenger RNA now outside the nuclear membrane, and it comes out into the cytoplasm of the cell, and it is picked up by... <laughs> no, this is ribosome in this case. I'm sorry I fooled you. Stop right there. Do you see this is the messenger RNA? Can you see there's three of these, three of these, three of those, three of those? That's, those are your three-letter words. So the code is contained on the messenger RNA. It's going through the ribosome being read down inside. Okay, now let's go on. So you can see a, a broad picture. It's being read through it. And you see these little things coming flying up here? That's the transfer RNAs. And they're bringing in the amino acids inside here. Keep going. Okay, let's keep going. This is the transfer RNA, and we're going to find a good picture here in just a second. Keep going. Right there. You see that little, <laughs> you see that little red blob right there? This is the transfer RNA, and it's carrying a specific amino acid. Glycine, alanine, phenylalanine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You memorized all those, right? We just had up here. There's a specific transfer RNA for each amino acid. And they carry them in to the ribosome to start building the... Exactly right. Keep going. So that's what's happening here. The transfer RNA is bringing in the ribosomes. By the way, stop just a minute. Not only do you have a specific transfer RNA for each amino acid, so that means a total of 20... In addition to that, you have another 20 specific for those amino acids. In addition. So if you were keeping track, that's 50 more. I mean, 20 more, right? So I almost want you to say it 20 times. There's 20 more different proteins. In addition. Okay? Let's keep going. So it's showing you that there's different ones carrying different amino acids. There's a different one. There's a different one. There's a different one. There's a different one. See, it's showing off here. <laughs> but each one's unique. And so there's the code being read. And then we're going to go down inside. So you see, here come the little transfer RNAs. They read the message here. They leave their amino acid behind. and starts building a chain up here. You see how that red chain is being constructed? By the way, that red chain is hemoglobin, which does look reddish, by the way. And this is trying to show you how fast that's going. As it's taking the information from the transfer RNAs and from the messenger RNA and reading it. And out the top, right there, comes this string of amino acids. Class, a string of amino acids is a protein. And so what you're going to see is by the time it finishes here, you now have a completed, I'm pa pausing, protein. We're stopped, right?
Okay, it's paused. I have to say this to your class. A protein is not just a string of amino acids. If that's all you had, you'd have no functioning proteins. The proteins also has to fold up into a specific shape, tertiary and binary shapes. And if it doesn't fit the right shape, it doesn't work. So that protein actually goes to another vesicle inside your cell where it helps shape the three-dimensional structure for that protein. And then it releases it into the cytoplasm to do the job for which it was designed. And do you know that's the way it reads in a chemistry book? But no, it wasn't designed. It just happened by natural causes. And if you believe that, I have a bridge I want to talk to you about. Okay. Can I forward it? We just started over. Okay, there we go. The chemistry building proteins in every living cell is sufficient to proclaim there must be a great designer, and I rest my case. No, I don't. But I could. Just from what I've told you. But we have learned so much more about the chemistry of living things in the last 50 years. We knew all of this 50 years ago, what I just told you about. But folks, we have been inundated with new information about the cell and its function that goes way beyond this, not the least of which is how I was embarrassed in a speech on the campus of USF in the early 2000s when I gave this kind of a lecture and asked for Q&A at the end, and a professor stood up over here on this side and said, now, Professor Payne, you did a wonderful job of explaining the amazing way the cell builds proteins. Congratulations. But what you didn't tell the class is, we have learned in the last few years that only about 5% of the DNA is needed to do every bit of that. So what about the rest of the 95%? What we've learned, he said in front of everybody, is that most of the rest of that is just a bunch of junk. Why didn't you tell the class that DNA really is a leftover junk pile? And I didn't know how to answer that. Because I didn't know enough about it. I did know enough to say this <laughs> in my defense. I said, well, sir, I don't have a good answer for you because I'm not knowledgeable enough about that information to really deal with it. But I will tell you this. I would be real careful about calling something junk. It might be better to say, I don't know what's going on yet. Because if you remember, there was a German scientist named Wiedersheim in the 1800s who said there were 150 vestigial organs in your human body. I said, do you know how many of those today are considered vestigial leftovers of your evolutionary past? I said, to my information, there are two. There were 150 back then. What did we not know? A whole lot. So if you don't know how to answer something, class, my suggestion is wait 20 years. But don't give up. 
because God has given us abundance of, no, of information to convict us there's a God, whether you can answer every question or not. So the whole issue of junk DNA is a big one. And since the early 1990s and right on through to the present time, some people make that argument a lot. But may I say to you, there's a book written now called The Myth of Junk DNA, which we don't have time to talk about. So here's the cell class as we know it today, and I say it's a self-replicating nanoscale robot. It's self-replicating because it can and does reproduce itself. Class, those of you that were here last night, did I show you the reproduction of a cell? You saw it. One became two, right? And I showed you down inside how machines were used to make that happen. That happens all the time. Billions of times every day. Nanoscale because the cells are quite small, like how about one billionth of a meter? And it's a robot because its activities are carried out unconsciously and automatically by precision molecular machines that follow ordinary physical law. So it's a nanoscale robot. And there's so much going on in there. We will not touch the hem of the garment. But we are going to talk a little bit more tonight about molecular machines. So for those who weren't here last night, because everybody else remembers this vividly, a molecular machine is a natural device on the molecular scale which is able to convert chemical and energy to produce linear and rotary motion as well as controlling many biological functions. It's a machine down at the cellular level that does amazing things. And there are thousands of them. So I introduced you to three last night, myosin, kinesin, and dynein. Class, do you remember the little walkers? Dynein walkers and kinesin walkers? That's just a couple. There are lots of them. I just want to mention briefly cilia. You have lots of openings in your body that are dangerous because they allow stuff in your body. Right? Did you know most of those openings have hairs in them of some kind? And let's take your lungs as an example. To get into your lungs, did you know there's a bunch of cilia there? Little hairs doing this. You better be thanking God for hairs. Cilia are critically important in your lungs. They help protect you from getting stuff in there that doesn't belong. And folks, <laughs> I have a whole lecture just on cilia. You say, that's cilia. <laughs> no, it isn't. There's a lot of chemistry because your body builds the cilia. And it uses kinine and dynine walkers to do it. And it's amazing chemistry for every hair in your body. That didn't come about by natural causes. And that's just hairs. So there's a picture. My apologies to every cilia. But I want to talk about the real motor. And that's the bacterial flagellum. A flagellum is a little thing that sticks off a bacteria that goes around like this and allows it to swim. A bacterium is a little one-celled organism, folks. 
Did you know, class, that your intestines is full of them? Thousands and millions of them? Did you know that if you didn't have them, you'd be dead? We modern-day parlance call that whole system down there your biome. And it has built into it lots of little beasties that are not you. But they're swimming around and they're doing all kinds of stuff. One of them is E. coli. You heard of that one? Some strains of E. coli will kill you. But there are a bunch of strains that not only will not kill you, they're absolutely necessary for you to survive. And each of those guys has a little flagellum or more. That's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes. So, let's see here. Is, this our, is the next slide our video, video thing? All right. Um, can we get a little more light off somewhere? Maybe the closest one's up here. Can you do that? That's good. I just want you to be able to see it a little better. What you're seeing here is a live picture of little bacteria swimming around in a medium, something like your intestines. I don't want to get gross here, but the fact is you got these swimming around in you. And I want you to understand this is real stuff. All right, so keep going. By the way, this was put together by a Japanese company to show you how the bacterial flagellum works. There's the flagellum making that guy swim around. He only has one, but in a minute you're going to see some guys here. These are the, keep going. I think we went back to the beginning, didn't we? All right, go ahead and keep going. These are the E. coli. Now you can stop. These are the E. coli. They're a little bigger. <laughs> okay, we keep going back and forth. Stop right there. That's an E. coli, and he's bigger, and he's got bigger flagellum. In fact, usually they have anywhere from four to ten, and they can wrap around each other and go. <laughs> and he can move around. In fact, it is said the flagellum goes faster than a cheetah if you count body lengths. It really whips around there. All right, let's keep going. And we're going to come now to a screen that uh, blows that up a little bit and shows you a cartoon of an E. coli. So here we go. There it is. You can stop right there. That's the E. coli blown up. Whoops, what happened? Did I do that? Save me, mister. <laughs> All right, here we go. There's the E. coli. Do you notice this guy's got four of them, four flagellum? They wrap around each other and go faster. What you need to understand, class, is that flagellum right there whips around fast enough to drive this little guy wherever he wants to go by a mechanism I'm about to show you. But notice first that here he is, and he's attached to the cell membrane of this little one-cell organism. And my wife, when I first taught this, said to me, you lost me. I don't want to lose any of you right now. I want you to know that right now in your body, there's thousands of these little guys swimming around right in here. All right, you with me? And they're down at the level you could line up 50,000 of them on your fingernail. That's how little they are. They've got a little motor in them that drives that flagellum. 
at 17,000 turns per minute. And in an instant, it can stop turning clockwise and turn counterclockwise back at the same speed. There isn't a motor built by any human being that can touch top side or bottom of that one. A Harvard physicist says of this, that's the most spectacular, efficient machine in the universe. Well, the fact is we've studied that one more than a whole lot because E. coli can be dangerous. Keep going. So now we're going to close in right here. Here's the flagellum, and it's now attached, see, to the cell wall of that little bacteria. Here's a hook, and here's the filament, and the hook. And when you go down inside through the cell wall, you see this whole basal body here rotating around. That's your motor that drives the flagellum. And here's the stator that keeps it stabilized. Here's the rod and the rings and the layers. Stop right there. Thank you. Now, it isn't all those colors, folks. But that very much is a picture of what's going on inside the cell wall of that little bacteria to drive that flagellum. Now, if you know anything about motors, if that thing's rotating 17,000 times per minute, it's going to shake, isn't it? So the stator, which is connected to the middle layer here, the peptico-glycan layer, stabilizes this whole system. And these bushings that are here stabilize it as it takes through the wall here. Okay, let's keep going now. And what you're going to see is the various parts. There's the stator, which stabilizes it and has other processes that go on with it too. There's the rotor, which actually drives the motor. And now we're going to start over. we got to stop there, right? Here are the three layers, ladies and gentlemen, of the cell wall of every E. coli. <laughs> okay, here we are. Here's what you need to know. I didn't know this one year ago. When an E. coli divides by mitosis that I showed you last night, it does not reproduce the flagellum in the division process. So the new cells have to start over and build the flagellum. And what we're about to show you is how does an E. coli build its own flagellum? They are self-assembled. And you ought to fall out of your chair. Not only do you have to explain this incredible motor, which is better than any motor humans have ever produced, but it builds itself. So that's like having a Ford motor. Maybe I shouldn't use that because somebody don't like Ford. But you have a motor, but you also have to build a factory that makes it. 
without any engineers. So what you're going to see next in here is the process by which it builds that flagellum from scratch, from the bottom up, all guided by the DNA and the... That was weak. I'm losing you. Guided by the DNA and the... Which do all the work. <laughs> like mamas at the house, right? All right, let's go. Here we go. I'm going to try not to stop. I want you to watch this thing being built. So first is this fly F protein. All of that's 26 copies of the same protein. That's called the MS ring that's built first. Below it is the fly G protein and the fly M and fly N proteins, exactly 26 copies of each, different proteins for different purposes. Up through the middle now comes the rod, which is built next. As you come to the top here, you have a cap. Watch that rod cap now. There's a very specific purpose for that rod cap. As the stators are built around it, in that order, then we drill through two layers of cell membrane. That's not a good thing to do unless you fill it real quickly with bushings of different proteins, the L and the P rings, and come out the other side and dismiss that cap and build a hook cap now, which can then build the hook. I do want to stop right there. Hang on. Can you stop? Okay. Class. I mean, I've skipped about a thousand things, but I can't skip this. That hook has to be 55 nanometers long. If it's longer, it doesn't work. If it's shorter, it doesn't work. So the proteins built into this process of building the hook have a timing device built into them so that it'll be exactly 55 nanometers long and then you dismiss the hook cap. You know how big a nanometer is? One billionth of a meter. And it's got to be that precise. Let's keep building. See, we're not finished because once the hook is built... You dismiss the cap, and then you've got to have these interim proteins, junction proteins, because the protein of the filament's different than the protein in the hook, so you have to have a special cap just for that, and we call her twinkle toes. There's five pieces to twinkle toes. She's got five toes here, and I want you to watch twinkle toes as she builds the filament. See the white these are different proteins, but each one of them is the same in the filament. They come out one at a time, and she directs them with her toes. And they go into specific places, one at a time, by the thousands. And watch, she's going to start rotating and twinkle-toeing even better. The only problem with that is it needs to go about ten times that fast. And folks... You know there can be up to 30,000 units of that protein being added. That filament is about 100 times longer than that, protein, that uh, little one-celled organism. I'll tell you where I am, folks. When I see something like that, sometimes I just break down and cry. 
That's what God did for a little one-celled organism that helps keep you alive. Man has never produced a motor that even touches top side or bottom of that. I showed this class last night about some engineers that have built nano cars. You remember this class? That are made out of one molecule and they've actually raced them. And the man who built it, Dr. Tour, said to all of us, this is nothing compared to what nature by God's device has done. Nothing. And then I showed you the 281-page paper he wrote, he wrote to describe how much work it took to build those little nanocars. And compared to this thing, that'd be like riding a camel compared to an electric motor. There are multiple protein processes. Each protein is complex and suited for its own function. I didn't emphasize to you enough, every one of those are different proteins. Everyone's specific. Everyone built by the process I showed you earlier, copying DNA and making the protein, which itself required about 50 different proteins to build one protein, all of which had to be functioning at the same time. And each machine is highly sophisticated, and these machines are spontaneously self-assembled in the cell from the bottom up as if you were building a tower. And there's no straw boss. And there are thousands of them in every living cell. You have 30 trillion cells in your body. Every one of them's got this stuff going on inside of it. You ought to be worn flat out. Why aren't you lying down? Hopefully you will later. I've worn you out. Is it reasonable to believe in the great designer in this scientific age class? It is more reasonable than it has ever been in the history of mankind. And I would tremble to be in the footsteps of some of these men who say God is a delusion. And try to talk people out of belief in God. They ought to be ashamed of themselves because it seems to me anybody can see that is not reasonable. And that's my lecture for tonight.